because I didn't know who God really was in the face of my sexual sin and who he really is, who he really is in light of our mess, is he is the God who uses Rahab, the prostitute, in the lineage of Jesus Christ. He is the God who redeems the woman at the well and and sends her off in evangelism, the one who stays by her well and offers her living water, even in spite of her sexual sin, her, her filth, her past, her history, she just couldn't escape. I see a God who is the one who you know, stands before the woman to be stoned and, and doesn't condemn her, but in response to his great love and mercy says, now go and sin no more. Live differently in response to this grace, in response to this love. And that just wrecked my heart. This is Words to Live By, a podcast that serves the purpose to help you supercharge your relationships with God, others, and yourself. I'm Michael Gibson, and this week on the show, we're going to be talking about sex. Dad and I welcome New York Times bestselling author and soccer star Mo Isom to the podcast to share incredible wisdom on living free from the clutches of guilt and pornography. It's a fascinating conversation, and it's all next. And welcome into another edition of Words to Live By. It's your host, Michael Gibson, alongside my co-pilot, Dad. I've officially changed. I've been calling you sidekick all this time, but I think I'm going to uh, <laughs> I think I'm going to start calling you co-pilot from now on. Is that a little bit better for you? That is a little bit better for me. I feel much more included than being the sidekick. <laughs> but for this episode, you're such a good sidekick. Called Big Daddy. Oh, geez. I know that's what you keep saying, but uh, I, I've given you a very specific set of rules for this episode, Dad, and I know uh, that you like to... Hey, I'm going all out on this episode. Yeah. <laughs> we always love to talk about my favorite topic on this show is your conception. I know. I, you seem to always like to work that in, and uh, you've done pretty well these last couple of episodes, but right. uh, this one... Especially for today's topic, I, I'm going to get to go more into it and be able to really share with the world of Michael Gibson coming in. Well, we're not going to do that, actually. <laughs> my favorite thing is embarrassing my son. I know. I know. You love to do that. And uh, so all of our listeners will, uh, but they, they all know by now that you like to work in that story. But um, hey, dad, I, I am so excited about today's episode. I know you and I have both been looking forward to uh, to this conversation um, because uh, sex is something that is uh, definitely a taboo in the church. And uh, so it's uh, I, I've always applauded you as a marriage pastor at your church. You certainly don't shy away from this, uh, this subject. In fact, you just had a recent event where um, you pretty much talked about this uh, throughout the whole event, right? Yes. It was called Coffee, Sex, and Jesus. And it was- well, there uh, you go. You know, it was amazing. It was sold out. And it was just a great event that people just have so many questions today inside of the church, from those who grew up in the church, to those who are new in the church, to those who may be newlyweds, to celebrating their golden anniversary. It's a topic that not just individuals, but couples always want to learn more about and not just learn about having sex, but just wanting to know more of what God allows in sex. What, how does it, you know, what are, what are the boundaries? So there's always a lot of questions around this topic, no matter, again, if, if you're single and young or older, married, and maybe even an empty nester, 
it's something that is a great conversation for us to have, especially with our guest today. That's right. Our guest is uh, is actually she's a New York Times bestselling author, and uh, she's also a sports star. Uh, she's an All American goalkeeper from Louisiana State University, and actually, Dad, listen to this: holds the LSU all time goalkeeper record, and as well as the uh, number three SEC all time uh, sh- uh, shootout record. So, or shutout record, excuse me. So, uh, Mo Isom is with us today. Hi, Mo. How are you? Hello. I am doing great. I love being introed with the sports background because I'm a few years out of that now and I, I birthed babies and I feel like that's a, a, <laughs> a decade ago and I love it. If I tried to kick a soccer ball now, I don't know how it would go, but I definitely uh, <laughs> definitely had my prime there in college with, with sports. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. What a cool record to be able to, uh, to just say and to be able to, I'm sure that that was such a, uh, such a cool time in your life. It was, it was so neat. I played, um, at LSU. So any, any Tiger fans listening, go Tigers. Um, but it was really neat. That was a fun season. Um, so, I mean, I say season, I played from six to, you know, when I graduated, um, college, but it was fun. I was in and out with the U S national team some, and, um, my second game as a freshman scored a 90 yard goal, even though I was no a goalkeeper. Way. I scored, yeah, on the other goal. That was like a sports center top play. And uh, you can find it on YouTube. Anyone listening, there's a fun little link. But it was neat. It was it was so fun to represent um, a university and play at that level and, and really travel the world growing up pr- playing. So I um I love those days. Thank I you. have some framed photos in my office from from that time, and I'm like, man, I was fit. I need to get back to that. <laughs> hey, soccer can definitely do that to you. Yes, even the goalkeeper position. People think we just stand back there, but no way. It is it that was like physically the most fit and strongest time of my life and I just love it. I loved it. Wow. Well, hey, it's an awesome sport, that's for sure. And I know you are big time when you reach ESPN top 10. Right? That was that so cool. That was so so cool. <laughs> I got to tell you, we, I grew up, you know, playing basketball and, and football. And, and then we went over and lived in Africa. And I never played oh, so nice. much soccer in all my life. Yeah. They love it. <laughs> love it. Anywhere you go around the world, I feel like that soccer is the sport. It's, well, it'd be football there, but. Um, it's just here, just in America. It's definitely picking up steam. But um, yeah, you go goodness to Africa, go to South America. Soccer is, is the game. It is. And I think they had more enjoyment making me look like a fool on a soccer field than anything <laughs> else. Going I wouldn't head, doubt that. Over my head, <laughs> all those kinds of things. It was fun. Yep. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so cool. That's so cool. Well, hey, Mo, uh, one thing we love our guests to do on the show is just uh, maybe to introduce yourselves to uh, to our listeners. And um, and uh, so tell us a little bit about you and um, and tell us a little bit about um, this particular message and, and uh, how you got started. What inspired you to write the book? Yeah, that's a, a great question. I, um, I'll start with a little bit about myself where uh, I'm married to my husband, Jeremiah, and we have two amazing daughters, a two-year-old and a six-month-old, and um, we live just in the Atlanta area. So I grew up here in Georgia, then went off to play soccer at LSU in Louisiana, and then uh, came back home to Atlanta after college and have sort of planted roots here. And um, since my time in college and then back home now have um, 
grown a, a ministry, really. I traveled the country as well as internationally speaking and um, write books. And um, all of that has so grown so organically out of um, just uh, amazing things that God has done in and through my life in ways that he's really transformed my life. I, I was not always walking with Jesus and, um, you know, struggled a lot growing up with, with identity issues and, um, a really vicious eating disorder. And then very unexpected suicide of my father after my freshman year of college and a horrific car accident after my sophomore year of college and just a lot of adversity. Um, but it was actually in that car accident that, that God very boldly and very beautifully met me and just wrecked my life and transformed my life and um, captivated my heart. So um, moving out of that, it has been a a really beautiful adventure walking with Christ and it's led um, into where I am now and, and writing books and, and speaking about who he is and the goodness of who, who he truly is. And, um, so my first book, Wreck My Life, was uh, the New York Times bestseller you mentioned. That was my testimony of coming to faith. But when I was writing that book, I realized there was such a dense sexual testimony as well um, that paralleled you know, this, this transformation in my life as a whole. It, it paralleled all of that and was so transformed and redeemed when I came to know Christ. And I didn't want to just squeeze it into my first book, you know, sell it short by just squeezing it into a chapter. I knew this was, you know, a story that needed some breathing room. It needed to have some legs of its own because it is such a conversation that we are struggling or failing to have um, as a whole, as, you know, the church, as the body of believers. And, um, you know, so much of my life was learning every hard lesson, every hard way. And when I came to know Christ, he just revealed so much truth to my heart about sex and about his beautiful design and also his remarkable redemption of our sexual story. So um, I wrote this book. It's called Sex, Jesus, and the Conversations the Church Forgot. And I wrote it really um, just kind of as a battle cry kind of also as a calling up of the church and also as um, an equipment, a resource to put in people's hands to understand what God has to say about sex and why it matters to, to listen, you know, and to care and to live in obedience to that. Um, so it's, it, I'm so excited. I'm just excited that it's out, that it's, you know, alive and that the words are circulating and it's been really neat to see what God's done with them already. Yeah, that's so exciting, and and uh, you know, Mo, we have a lot of uh, of college age uh, college age people and uh, post grads that listen to the show, and um, you know, uh, I think that the enemy likes to use sex as something that um, it's just a it's a main attack mechanism. Yeah, I, we've all I think faced that, and uh, but also I think that it's a tool that the enemy uses to. Um, to make us feel this level of guilt and this level of shame that, that really doesn't, that really doesn't seem to go away, even for some for many, many, many years, even after they're married. And so, you know, uh, my grandfather used to uh, just say that, that life is relationships and the rest is just details. And, mm-hmm. and we say that all the time on this, uh, on this show, we talk a lot about relationships on this show. And dad, one thing that I was so excited about is that, you know, I feel like we, we need to, uh, we can't talk about relationships without talking about, uh, this subject. And, um, and so that's why Mo, I'm just so encouraged about your message and, um, and,
and I, I'm just uh, really excited to be able to uh, to be able to learn how people can um, can be able to uh, kind of work past that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's neat to see when when we really look at Scripture, God has so much to say about sex all through the Word, and so many beautiful lessons um, to be taught and and wisdom to glean. But what I love when we look at scripture is the first conversation God ever had with man involved sex. And it also involved our worth and our inherent value as image bearing creations of God. So we see the very first conversation God has with man weaves together our identity, our worth, our value in him with sex, with sexual instruction and design. And what we see is that those two things were always meant to be woven together. And yet when you know we choose to choose for ourselves what is best for us sexually or when we enter into sexual sin or you know we um, come into that struggle or sometimes that you know pain inflicted on us out of our control, what happens is that we so often unhinge those two things. And the sexual struggles then that continue in our life are always rooted in deeply desiring affirmation or worth or love, or it is a tool that we use or, you know, wield to um, feel desired, feel wanted. And, and the reason for that, you know, whether it's amongst singles or married people, the reason I think so much of those, um, sin struggles exist and sexual sin struggles exist is because we never understood that, you know, those two things always spoke into one another from the very beginning. Our inherent worth and our value are so rooted in who God knit us together to be, you know, but he also um, married it together with sexuality and with this beautiful gift, this act of worship that he's given us. Um, and, And the repercussions when we kind of rip those two apart or a struggle with worth, with value, with identity. Um, so it's neat. It's neat to even just look back, sort of at the framework of where things began. I think it helps us understand even more so, you know, our sexual sin tendencies and um, our struggles or our baggage that we carry into marriage. And um, it's just neat to see that God, like, it's the first thing He spoke into in our lives. And I loved kind of getting to dig into that in the book and understand that better because it's so much more than just this rule list, this behavior modification. Deeply sexual understanding comes from heart transformation, and and God cares deeply for our hearts. Yes, and and it is neat, and just to see how God has created that, and and out of the heart, just really flows relationships in true yeah. relationships, as opposed to behavior modification, like you were just sharing, doesn't stick, but from the heart, it does. Yeah. And Mo, just from where your story is and understanding just kind of what you shared from the beginning, God created sex and how he, he really designed it um, for husband and and wife to be able to enjoy and and not just populate the the earth, but to be able to experience the relationship. You talk about your story and how it's much more than just a chapter in your book, but being a, a, a whole book, what the story is, is you have a lot to say about that. And so with your story, and you talked about coming to Jesus and through that experience is, where was that learning curve? Where was your situation? What was your story? 
and the part that coming up to that point of committing your heart to Jesus, then what you had to learn to move forward from that. Just kind of share that with us. Yeah, you know, I, I like to describe sort of my my story, especially sexually early on. It's just this this roller coaster ride. It was just really a mess because I didn't have the foundational understanding that we were just talking about. I was preached to a lot about the do this, don't do that, but no one ever told me why. And you know, we're people who don't want to not do something just because we're told to, you know, just we're, we're, we don't want to follow the rules. We want to push the envelope and we want to test the boundaries. And, you know, my story involved um, just a lot of misguidance and then misbehavior and rebellion and then repentance. And it was just sort of this constant tension. I think a lot of the woman at the well, just this path I knew, but it always made me go back for more, go back for more. And it was just exhausting. I, you know, sort of was church. So I wove this proud banner of virginity, but I knew nothing of purity. And so my youth really was this testing ground of like, how far is too far and what still qualifies me as a virgin. And, you know, this rule list following kind of works-based response to a heart surrender question. I, I proclaimed virginity, but was pushing every envelope I could behind closed doors. And I also was introduced very young to porn and struggled with pornography from age eight to 18. I um, struggled then with promiscuity. I mean, acting things out, living in the sin that my flesh desired and um, all the things we were discussing of seeking worth and value and love that way, hoping, you know, if I gave pieces of, of my body away, a, a man would maybe give me his heart. And um, that just always left me empty. And, you know, I, I mentioned that I lost my dad to suicide. And I think a lot of people struggle with this, but just using then sexuality and, and, and sexual measures is a pain coping technique. And, um, you know, a search for, for love when I felt like love had just been stripped away and abandoned um, from my life. And so, I was just really a mess and all over the place and um, so hypocritical in my words and then in my life behind closed doors. And um, a part of my story even involved being involved in unknowingly in an extramarital affair, not realizing that, you know, because my inhibitions were down and I could have cared less and I was drunk in college that I was, you know, being involved with a married man. I didn't realize. And, and, um, it was just brokenness that bred brokenness that bred brokenness and feeling so trapped in these things because they were what I knew and, and how I sought love and how I sought, you know, pleasure and value. And, um, when Jesus literally crashed through my story and opened my eyes to the truth of the gospel and the reality of what he did on that cross and what it meant for my life. It also opened my eyes to the incredible power of his redemption and his desire to not just make us better people, but to bring us from death and our sin to life in him. And, and I began to take the word of God very seriously at face value. And it said, love me with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. And um, when I began to lean into what that really meant, to, to love and to be loved fully by God, 
he began to just reveal to me the truth of who he really was, especially who he really was in light of my sexual sin. So much of my sexual sin had bred shame and guilt and silence and just really enslavement to these same patterns because I didn't know who God really was in the face of my sexual sin and who he really is, who he really is in light of our mess is he is the God who uses Rahab, the prostitute, in the lineage of Jesus Christ. He is the God who redeems the woman at the well and and sends her off in evangelism, the one who stays by her well and offers her living water, even in spite of her sexual sin, her, her filth, her past, her history, she just couldn't escape. I see a God who is the one who you know, stands before the woman to be stoned and, and doesn't condemn her, but in response to his great love and mercy, says, now go and sin no more. Live differently in response to this grace, in response to this love. And that just wrecked my heart. And it just resuscitated my heart with his glory. And it changed the way I behaved. It changed how I desired to carry myself. It changed my eyes, my sight. I couldn't see porn the same. You know, if we understand the reality of what God did for us and how he sees the world and how his heart breaks for broken things, then our heart begins to break for them too. And it just transformed everything, everything when it came to sexuality and, and sex and sexual wow. sin. And just seeing your story and to see all the things you've been through and, and see how God interrupted your life and, and just brought this truth. And going back to when you're eight years old, Mo, is just understanding you, you talked about, you mentioned porn. And being hooked on yeah. porn, and, and I know that's not a big topic. That uh, I know is becoming much more uh, women use use it more, and um, you know it's yeah. always been associated with guys. But from what I understand, women are definitely experiencing porn. Tell tell us about at eight years old being exposed to porn, and and how something like that is just kind of maybe created your belief system on what sex is and is it can women actually even be addicted to porn just kind of help us to really understand more what's going behind with women in that industry of course yeah i mean from a very basic understanding first and foremost we can just look at numbers here and we can understand this is a big issue and in 2016 alone In one year, in 2016, on one pornographic website, now there are hundreds of thousands, but we're looking at one year on one site, we as a people consumed 4.6 billion hours of pornography. That is 17,000 complete lifetimes of porn consumed in one year on one website. And so if we look at those numbers, we begin to understand if, if we think this is just unsaved males contributing to this statistic, then we are just as naive as it comes. This is men. This is women. These are children being affected by porn. The average age of exposure to pornography now is nine years old. That's just the average. Um, these are people within the church. These are people outside of the church. This is an epidemic that is affecting us as humanity in a massive, massive way, because we are consuming, you know, 4.6 billion hours in one year, and we're still coming back for more. And 
it is it is so imperative that we as the church begin to stand up and recognize that this is something we need to be talking about with men, yes, but with women, yes, with children, yes. And you know, I, I'm in two of those demographics. I was the child affected by it, and I became the woman still affected by it because it you know, eight years old, I came across my first exposure to pornography um, from something that was my dad's. And from that very moment, there was shame immediately. And then there was curiosity immediately. And there was a seeking out of more because that is the very thing that porn does. It takes this gift of God, it cheapens it, it dehumanizes it, and it appeals to our flesh. It presents the instant fix, the instant pleasure. And it, it's almost, it's like porn almost calls out to us. We seek it out once we've seen it. And, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter male or female. We're talking about the condition of the human heart and the reality of our human sin nature. And women are very much struggling with this too. And oftentimes, not only are women, you know, turning to porn for, for pleasure for the same reasons men do, um, but also I rationalized a lot in my youth that I was watching it to learn, to learn what this must be like, what sex must be like, what I was supposed to do to seem desirable, what I was supposed to do so that men would want me. I rationalized it as that. Then it became that I was actually seeing these women as an image of power. If I wanted to be a powerful, desired woman, this is what I needed to be like. And then you also see women struggling with pornography because men are struggling with it so much that women feel like they need to keep up with it, that this is what men are desiring. And this is even married women we're talking about whose husbands might be struggling with porn. And, you know, it's just vicious what it does, not only to our spirits, not only to our hearts, but also what it literally does to our brain chemistry, because it releases a dopamine hit that is just like, you know, the same chemical released when you see a loved one or when you see a pet, you know, or a song you love or food you love. It's that good feeling. And our brain wants it again and again and again, but eventually we're desensitized. We need a bigger hit to feel the same things. And, and it becomes addiction. It becomes, um, we, we seek out even more perverse things to get that same rush. And that, is massively affecting men and women and children across the board. It's affecting humanity. And the, the greatest struggle that I see with this and that God really opened my eyes to after, you know, revealing to me that the depravity of it was that what porn does by and large is it dehumanizes sex and it dehumanizes the people we're watching. We begin to so desperately want our instant urge to be met that we are seeing these people on the screen as body parts made for our pleasure rather than image-bearing creations of God. It dehumanizes people. And I think the statistic, I talk about it in the book, but um, I believe the statistic is that 88% of pornographic scenes actually depict violent acts or um, humiliating acts or verbal aggression, 88% of what we're consuming is a violent, aggressive, or abusive form of sex. And that is often sculpting our hearts and our eyes and our vision. 
And what's so sad is we, we then still keep coming back for more. There was a, there was a, um, gentleman, uh, in the pornographic industry, a producer who was quoted as saying that um, they really liked to use amateur women um, for their productions because the physical pain they were experiencing was real. And so their pain expressed was more authentic. And that's what their consumers really liked to see truly suffering, authentic pain. And I think when we start to really understand these things, it, it, it breaks our heart. Because it breaks God's heart. And we have to be people who rise up and realize this is affecting us massively as a culture. And it is literally affecting our vision of one another. It's affecting our hearts. It's affecting our marriages. It's affecting our character and singleness. It is, it is affecting us as people. And it's not just an issue men are dealing with. It's an issue across the board. So it was important for me to dig into that and talk about that in this book too. That's so important. And, and, you know, Mo, growing up, um, I have had a lot of friends that have dealt with that and they've opened up with me about that. And, um, you know, it's something that I've seen that's debilitating. It's something that I've seen is painful. And, and, um, you know, um, Mo, something that I've heard several of my friends say is they say, well, yeah, I mean, it's just something now that, you know, I'm wanting to do. And then but when I get married, it's going to be fine. <laughs> when I'm married, it's going to all go away. And, but you know, I mean, uh, that's just the research is everything wants to scream inside of me to say, we need to take another look at this together. And, um, you know, and, and because I've learned that, that, um, it's like the, it's like people's real life love, uh, definition for love is like it, it gets thrown out the window and it's like these people begin to search for, for real love and, and what does real love look like? And, and you know, the, the dark truth is, is that so many people that are listening to us right now are thinking to themselves, that is me. I am stuck right in the middle of this mess and I don't know how to get out. And, and, um, you know, you give such a great battle plan in your book. And so what are some ways that some people that are, are meeting us halfway and are, are, are right there and thinking to themselves, I am in the midst of this struggle. I would, I would say to that person listening, man, I, you are seen, you are known, you are loved, you are deeply sought after by the very creator who knit you together and who is in the business of redeeming and saving our lives and saving our stories. And so no first and foremost, you're not too far gone. I think so many of us just sit in our sin because we're so ashamed or we just feel too messy, too broken, or it seems too hard to somehow crawl out of this. So we just kind of resolve that like, this is just it. This is just kind of our stories. And it's just not true. It's just a lie straight from the pits of hell, to be honest. God desires deeply to meet you right where you are and to free you from, from addiction, to free you from this bondage of, of sexual sin, these rhythms, this routine of sexual sin that you're living in, desire so deeply to free you from shame. It's what Jesus came for. It's why he took the cross so that you wouldn't have to sit there and feel like it was just kind of it, but you could know that grace and mercy cover you and that God desires deeply to use you. So I would say first and foremost, what, what my prayer first became in my life, and this is really practical. This is a prayer we can begin praying. My prayer became, God, I can't do this on my own. So you have to do it. Break my heart for what breaks yours and bind my heart to thee. 
Give me eyes to see the world as you see it. Give me ears to hear the cries of the hurting. Make me more like Jesus. Make me more like you. My prayer became, God, you have to do this heart work. You have to begin to to craft, to break, to mold my heart to be more like yours, God, because Mo on her own, I just can't make it happen. I'm going back to the same stuff. You know, it's just, we're so human and we're so bound by our flesh. But man, if we can first begin to pray, God, knit your heart in me, transform me here, that becomes really huge. Um, You know, if we look at what love truly is, what love truly means, it is a laying down of Christ's life for us. And so what is love truly, if not a laying down of our life in response? And that means dying to self, dying to our urges, dying to our emotions that are tugging at our heart every turn we make, dying to our lusts, saying taking our thoughts captive, surrendering them to Christ and saying, God, replace them, replace them with truth. These are the spiritual ways we begin to participate in our own healing and seeking God's will and becoming obedient to what he calls us to. And um, so those things were just really imperative to me. It was a literal like, okay, stop. Like I need to just stop. <laughs> what I practically did was I stopped so much. I stepped into an intimacy fast with God. I said a year of my life, I will just be in relationship with you. I won't date. I won't you know, open the computer screen here. I'll put accountability barriers around this. I will seek accountability in my life. I want God to just put on the blinders and to walk hand in hand with you. I called it kissless till next Christmas, which I thought was just brilliant marketing. (laughs) It's like this year long intimacy (laughs) fast of God, I need to stop because right now I'm just running back to the same stuff every single time. So let me stop. Let me spend time with you, let me practically pray, God, would you please do this holy heart work in me? And let me lean into the word and find out more of what you have to say about these things and understand more of the truth of what um, you redeem and how you do it. And so that's a long answer to say the, the, the way you can really unpack this is genuinely to read the book, Sex, Jesus, and the Conversations the Church for God. It moves through all of that. But um, the first steps, I would say, with with great confidence is um, be still, know that he is God, enter into prayer with him, that he would begin to transform your heart and then practically take the steps to, to guard yourself, to surround yourself with accountability and to walk hand in hand with a king that has a lot to say about you and over you in a world that is screaming a lot of nonsense right back. Um, so that was where I began, and that that began to really snowball and unfold. A I love lot of your intimacy fast, and and as a marriage pastor, you know, unfortunately, I have people literally begging me to help them get off of their addiction to porn. More than any other addiction is from alcohol or drugs is is the porn is just tearing them apart, and these are guys just begging, help me, get me off of that. And I, I love what you shared with that. And Mo, you, you talked about a lot about porn and just a lot of false beliefs that we develop through porn. And, and then we get married and we start seeing, you know, hopefully it will take care of all of our needs because now we're married. But then there's also this belief system that we developed 
and we bring it into marriage. So a couple of questions for you. One is, is it okay for couples to watch porn together? So that way they can enrich their, their sex life. And then two, what would maybe be if one partner is addicted to sex and um, what false beliefs or, or expectations do they bring into their marriage that would really, it's more harm to the relationship than it is good. So really those two questions is, is it okay for married couples to watch porn together because they are together? And then two is really, um, what damage does it do to the marriage in the relationship aspect when someone is, is really involved in porn? Yeah, I, w- I would say first and foremost to answer the first question, um, you know, Scripture says to, to, to keep the bed, the marriage bed undefiled. Marriage is a unity of two people as one flesh. And it, sex is a beautiful act of worship. It is also an incredible weapon against the enemy. Sex is above all a gift of unification between two people. And my answer to is porn okay then in marriage is no, no, because this is still a perverse and broken thing. And the gift that God gave us as husband and wife is a gift to intimately and invulnerably be united with one another. The two meeting one another's needs, the two sacrificially laying down their lives for the other. And when we involve porn, I mean, first and foremost, it's, it's, it's a debauchery. It's a perversion of sex in its holy context. And to bring that into the equation, um, typically, if I'll just be totally frank here, typically people need to bring it in because they need that additional element of arousal because they are not as aroused with just one other partner. And that saddens my heart because I think we're just seeing it as a physical need then when sex is always meant to be physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual. It is an all-consuming, like all-inclusive act. And when when porn comes into the equation for a married couple, it's just defiling the very purity that God intended for the gift. Um, not only are you watching broken acts and and other people, um, it's it just messy. Um, it's it's other people who are either in that because they want to be or don't. Um, when you're watching this perversion of what this great gift is, it just it brings that perversion right into the marital bed. And scripture says to keep that undefiled, to keep that holy, that a husband and wife would come together and delight in one another in this act that is mentally, physically, spiritually, um, emotionally so powerful. And so my answer to the first question is no. And it almost makes me sad that we have to even answer that. Um, but it, it brings to the second question of what if one spouse is struggling um, and, and not the other. And, and that breaks my heart too, because I know that's very real. And there are so many people who are moving through that. And my heart first goes to the spouse who is not struggling with that, because how deeply that must ache that 
your spouse needs something else. It, it, it comes all back down to the identity, to the worth, to the value. It leaves that spouse who doesn't want that or need that thinking, am I not enough? Am I not enough here for you to delight in and um, for you to you know, be aroused by and for you to find pleasure from? Um, so for the spouse listening, who's the one that doesn't need it and doesn't love that it's a part of your you know, marital relationship, my, my heart grieves with you. Um, but it's not too far lost to be found. I think then of the spouse who's in the throes of it and needs it or uses it. And I just want them to know, man, scripture says, create in me a clean heart. Oh God, renew in me a steadfast spirit. There is power in the redemption of God reclaiming our sight, you know, restoring our heart and allowing us to be freed of the need for these broken things to get us where we need to be, you know, to be intimate with our partner. I would speak to that spouse. If you're the one listening to say you have the most incredible gift in front of you with your spouse, your husband or your wife who wants all of you, who wants all of you. And the fact that you are needing this other tool and can't fully give of yourself to your spouse. Um, God desires for that to be redeemed. Um, and, you know, I honestly, it's, it's kind of a hard emotional question for me to answer because I was in a household growing up where my father was addicted to pornography and it left my mother alone in bed many nights while he was on the couch watching things on TV at 2 a.m., 3 a.m. And it robbed so much of their sex life. And ultimately it robbed so much of their marriage. And ultimately it left a man so broken that life wasn't worth living in his eyes. And if we can't see the cause and effect there, if we want to dismiss it and say, no, this girl talking on the podcast doesn't get it. I just do this because I always have, and it's just how I get off and all these things, man, I would say you're, 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 you're messing with fire here and you're not even understanding how deeply this weapon you're wielding is wounding you and wounding your spouse. Sex is meant as a gift, a unifying gift, and it hurts me when um, we we don't understand that because it has it has you implications. Know, Mo, a lot of people that are listening, I know, are also wanting to know probably more than anything else is how can I help that person who's addicted, especially if it's my spouse. And you know, we always teach on this: you you can't change your spouse. You you can't. And the only thing I can change mm-hmm. is myself. That's true. But yet. I go to bed with this person and like, unfortunately, the experience your mom had is what would you counsel someone like your parents who one is addicted, one is is being left alone in a relationship, robbed out on the intimacy Mm -hmm. of the relationship and just just a good, solid, loving marriage is how, how would you advise that person to go about and protecting their marriage, but also encouraging that person who may be addicted to porn. Yeah, that's so great. I would say uh, two things. There's, there's the prayer and there's the practical. I think our first greatest weapon and contributing tool we have in this for a spouse who is struggling with this is fierce and unyielding prayer for them. Prayer over them, prayer about them, bringing their name to the throne, pleading on their behalf, coming prayerfully um, to the king of all kings 
on their behalf and praying for them. I think it's also important that our heart is right in that condition and that we are praying for them from a pure heart place that has also forgiven them and understands that they are in the throes of a sin struggle. And, you know, I think a lot of the time, sometimes we'll begrudgingly pray, but deep down, we're actually pretty resentful. And um, understandably, we've been hurt maybe for years, maybe for decades in your marriage. Um, But God cares very much for the condition of our hearts. And so I think we've got to process through, um, understand that this is a son or a daughter of the king. Um, and pray from a place of compassionate understanding and um, a pure place of deeply desiring God to truly transform their hearts. Because like you said, we can't. We can't change our spouse, Um, but we can fiercely pray for them because the king of all kings can change their spouse. And all it takes from God is a whisper. You know, or it takes a process that God is desiring to bring them through. God knows your spouse. He knows their hearts. He knows their desires. He knows their struggles. He knows their sins. So bringing your spouse's name to the throne and praying for them um, as often and as much as you possibly can is extremely important. I would say then practically have the conversations. Don't... (laughs) I feel a lot of the times what I at least saw in my own home, and I want to speak into this delicately because this isn't, this is my mom's story, you know, my, not my story as much to share, but, um, we almost just kind of sometimes resolve into silence and, um, we're so tired of bringing it up or having the fight or, you know, crying ourselves to sleep or whatever it may be that we just end up kind of accepting it and, Um, just stopping talking about it. But man, if we could keep the conversation alive, come to your spouse, share your heart with them. Let them know that you love them fiercely, that you're praying for them, that you desire freedom from these things for them. Um, Practically, there, there are tools, there are equipments, there is counseling, there's counseling within the church, there is counseling even out of the church for sexual addiction, for sexual struggles. Counseling can be very helpful. Um, practical, like application of safeguarding computers and phones and um, you know, internet searches and, and um, devices, all of those things, there's practical ways to implement those things. Um, But there's also just really authentic conversation that I think even when it's hard, even when it hurts, even when it seems scary or even when it seems tiresome to come back and to be open and honest and vulnerable with your spouse um, that that I find either immediately or over time will encourage and invite open and authentic conversation from them as well. So those are some prayerful things and some practical things that I think are important for us to come around. But um, it's hard. It's hard. And it's, it's unique for each person. So there also has to be the prayer of like, God, okay, with discernment, how do I navigate this? You know, help me, help me help my spouse. Give me the words to say, give me, you know, the timing of when I should approach it and how, and give me the grace and the patience to handle their response. If it's not the same response I want, you know? And so it's a process, man. It's such a process, but God above all things cares deeply about relationship. Um, our relationship with him and our relationship with our spouse. So it's worth fighting for. 
it really is worth fighting for. Yeah. Awesome. Well, hey, Mo, I know that we have just uh, scratched the surface of the your incredible content that's in this new resource. Um, but uh, before we go, um, we oh, Dad and I always love to ask our guests just to pray for the people that are listening right now that are thinking to themselves, I'm right there. I am stuck in the middle of, uh, of some pretty deep stuff and, and I don't really know how to get out. And, and do you mind praying for those people right now? I would love to. Uh, dear God, we, we come to you, Lord. Um, First off, just to praise you. God, you are good and you are holy. You are a good father who cares deeply for us, Lord, and has immeasurable grace and mercy and freedom available for us, Lord. Um, we come to repentant, God. We are so human and <laughs> we are so quick to cast the first stone, Lord, when there's mess still in our own hearts, Lord. So we just come to you with open hands, Lord, um, seeking your forgiveness for the sin that's in our life, Lord, um, for the unspoken sin that we haven't even recognized, Lord. We just bring ourselves to you and say that you are holy and we are so in need of your great grace and your great mercy and your great love. Um, God, we also just come to you petitioning for those we love around us who may be struggling with these very same things, maybe things we can relate to, God, or maybe things that we can't. Um, God, we just bring them to your throne. Lord, we just bring their names, their hearts, their lives to your throne. God, would you see them? Would you know them? Would you hear our cries for them on their behalf, Lord? Um, and would you just do what you do? Would you be who you are? Lord, the one who is in control, the one who is mighty to save, the one who sees us, knows us, loves us, calls us redeemed, God, the one who meets us in our mess and stays, stays by our well and offers us living water. Lord, would we take of that living water, of your great love, of your great mercy, Lord, would we take of that um, and be satisfied. God, would you just open our eyes to the lies we may be believing, lies of the enemy that just aren't at all rooted in truth. God, lies, lies, lies that we've been consuming for way too long, Lord. Would you tune our our hearts to the lies, Lord? Would we take those thoughts captive, surrender them to you, Lord? And then would you tune our ears to your still small voice that always speaks truth? Lord, would you um, draw us in hunger to your word so that we would know truth that we can replace the lies with. God, would we know what you have to say about us? Would we know what you have to say about sex? And would we know what you have to say about your incredible redemption of all things? We love you, Lord. We praise you. Um, we just ask all of this in your holy and precious name. Amen. And that's our show with Mo Isom. If you are interested in this topic and want to learn more, I would really encourage you to pick up a copy of Mo's new book. It's called Sex, Jesus, and the Conversations the Church Forgot. Actually, I got a copy just recently and started reading it myself, and it is fantastic. Mo is so wise on this topic, and so if you're looking for a great resource and if you're looking for healing in this area, I would definitely recommend that you get this book from wherever you buy your books. If you like the podcast, we would love it if you would give us a five-star rating. We love those five stars, and we also love your comments as well. They really encourage us, and they keep us going because we certainly love this show, and we certainly love interacting and meeting with all of you. Our music was produced, as always, by my good friend Rob McLean, and you've been listening to Words to Live By.